I want to uh, take an opportunity to uh, thank you and thank this staff and thank the elders and deacons for the spirit of generosity that I have received over the past uh, two weeks. We're excited, our family and I are excited uh, to be with you. And I am especially excited as we continue this series, Encounters with Jesus. And uh, I, I want to share with you a, a, a quick story before we begin. So uh, several years ago, many years ago, before I was married and had a family, I was serving a church outside of Washington, D.C. And the traffic in Washington, D.C. is horrific. And I remember on one particular occasion, uh, as I was headed to the hospital, it was down a street that was uh, in an area that had been recently developed. A hospital was there, and then suddenly businesses come in, and, and things were just growing up so quickly. And um, I was trying real quickly to get to the hospital, and uh, I, was, I was doing the speed limit, though, uh, right at the speed limit. And uh, the light went from green to yellow to red. And I, I, I did. I did. I tried to stop. But as I was stopping, I saw the flashes of light. And unfortunately, they were not divine flashes of godly uh, 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 origin. I had just been caught by the traffic light camera in Silver Spring, Maryland. Well, nothing seemed to happen. I backed up. I waited. The light turned green again. I went on my merry way. Days goes by. Weeks go by. And I had forgotten about it until one day the summons arrived in the mail. Apparently, I was being charged with a crime, it said. And the crime that I had committed was I had failed to obey a traffic signal. And I could do one of two things. I could either pay a $185 fine or I could appear in court. And so being convinced of the fairness of American jurisprudence, I decided to have my day in court. <laughs> now last week we ended with uh, Jesus and Andrew meeting. It was the first example of an encounter with Jesus in the Gospel of John. And as we met Andrew, one of the things that Andrew taught us is, is that we can go and get the one, just like Andrew did. I really appreciate some of you told me this morning, you said, I brought my one, and you introduced me to it. One of you introduced me to their sock. That was the one they brought. Yeah, you just have to see the sock. So go and look at everybody's socks, and you'll figure that joke out. Um, but I really appreciate the fact that you all thought about the one that you needed to bring. But some things have happened since Andrew and Jesus had their encounter. Now, I want you to know that it's not going to be every Sunday as we go through things, and I'm going to tell you everything that happened from the first text that we looked at to the second text we looked at. But this Sunday, it's important because some things happen between the time that Jesus had his encounter with Andrew and Jesus' encounter with Nicodemus, is which we're going to talk about today. And the first thing that Jesus has done is he has turned water into wine. You remember this story. This is the first miracle. As a matter of fact, if you've been to any traditional wedding, uh, generally the, the person officiating the wedding will say that 
Jesus blessed this way of life by his first miracle at the wedding feast in Cana of Galilee. Pretty much word for word uh, for many preachers as they give that wedding vow, as they begin the, the wedding service to give those vows. It is understood by the church as uh, perhaps erroneously so, as Jesus authorizing the importance of marriage. There's nothing wrong with that, but I'm not so sure that's why Jesus turned water into wine. I mean, uh, the flippant reason is because his mother told him to, and Jesus, being the Son of God and perfect, had to do what his mother told him to do. But Perhaps more importantly, it showed the divinity of Jesus, which John's really interested in. We're not going to belabor a lot of that, but just know that this has probably called, caused a stir in the Hebrew community, that somebody has been able to turn water into wine. Might have different reasons of why that's so exciting, but certainly that story is beginning to ripple through the community and communities that Jesus finds himself in. But then something else happens that isn't as wonderful as that story. Jesus drives out the money changers of the temple. Now, you'll remember this in the Synoptic Gospels. This occurs right before Jesus goes into Jerusalem for the last time, leading up to his uh, trial and his crucifixion. But John, who is more interested in trying to set Jesus in, a, uh, in, in the context of an explanation of who he is, sometimes John takes events and moves them around a little bit, uh, as an effort to, to prove points about Jesus. J John is not so much interested in a historical recounting of Jesus' life, like Luke is. John's more interested in talking about who Jesus is. And so John puts this event at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. And Jesus walks into the temple, you remember the story, sees all the money changers. There's a reason behind all of that, which we can go into in, in, in another Sunday but one of the things that is so astonishing is, is that Jesus turns over all of the tables and begins to drive these people doing business in the temple, out of the temple, with this declaration. You are profaning my father's house. You are turning my father's house into a place of business. And that's not acceptable to Jesus. Now, given these two events... That is significantly more stirring than the turning of the water to the wine. I mean, everybody whose livelihood is built on the business of the temple isn't so sure about this guy. I mean, he talks about good things. He's been talking about grace and forgiveness and, and attention to God the Father. But, you know, it's one thing to talk about it. It's another thing to upset the business as usual. And so people are concerned. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, the priests. He's already made himself four very significant enemies. And so then we arrive to the story of Jesus' encounter with Nicodemus. And I want to share this with you. It is in John chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. John chapter 3. If you have your Bibles, you can follow along with me. Yesterday at the Men's Impact Breakfast, the speaker, Dr. Turner, uh, asked all the men to pull out their Bibles. I was encouraged. Some men brought their Bibles. God bless them. The rest of us, and myself included, said, thank you, Lord, for smartphones. So we pulled out our smartphones and opened up the Bible app. There was a few downloading a Bible app, but that's another question entirely. So from John chapter 3, verse 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night 
and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, <coughs> excuse me, truly I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, You must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound. But you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Now let me just stop here for a second. As I was preparing this, I thought to myself, Jesus, I'm not sure I understand these things. Verse 11, truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the servant in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. See, I switched from English Standard Version to King James because that's how I learned it. That whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that through him the world might be saved. But Jesus continues... Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest their works be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Here reigns the reading of God's holy and perfect word. May he add his blessing and his understanding to it. Amen. You know, one of the things that I really like about this is, is that Nicodemus believes that Jesus is a teacher from God. Now, that's not as much of a revelation as you might think because there are lots of people in our world today who would say Jesus is a good teacher. They come to Jesus for some morsels of wisdom. They might even post a saying that Jesus said on their Facebook page or Instagram or Twitter. They might put it up on the refrigerator. And that word to many of them is really no different than any other word. Any other word that 
might come from a wise person, a good thought for the day. It's easy to accept Jesus as a teacher. Teachers, many of you are educators, you know that what you say is a very democratic process. That is, is that they can either accept it or they can reject it to their own peril or to their own benefit. Is that the same with Jesus? Is the choice to listen and believe the same as listening and believing to any other great person that we might turn to for wisdom? There are some things that we can subtly catch into this is that Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night. Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night. Sometimes when we're not sure or when we think that we should know everything, it's hard to realize I don't know as much as I thought I knew. For many of us, especially as we've grown, over, or grown older, we've realized that the older we get, the more we realize how little we know. To Nicodemus' credit, he realizes that there's something about Jesus. And he also realizes that there's something that he has to do. He has to go talk to this man. But he can't risk his own status. He can't risk his, his own position. He can't risk the opinion that others might have to him. So perhaps that's why he came at night. I don't know. All I know is I got a summons, and I had to go to court. Now, you might not recognize this guy. This guy is Judge Frank Caprio. He is a municipal court judge in Providence, Rhode Island. There uh, was a TV show in 2017 that featured him, and he is known as America's most fair judge. So all the cases as it was being televised, you can go on YouTube and, and, and just, just Google his name on YouTube and watch several of these court cases. He always wants to know the backstory behind why you got the ticket. If you were trying to get your kid to school and you were running late and so you double parked to get your kid to school quickly and, and you know, you're working three jobs to, to, to be able to provide a living, this judge always wanted to know what was the reasons behind the reason you broke the law. This is the judge I was hoping I would get. <laughs> and this is the judge that I got. As I sat in the courtroom watching this judge who seemed to me to be in cahoots with the prosecutor, there were over 30 cases ahead of me. Every single one of them were found guilty. Every single one of them. Some of them I'm like, he's got to let this person off. Guilty. And I sat there and was thinking, now I'm not only going to have to pay 180 bucks, I'm going to have to pay court costs too. Jesus says to us and to Nicodemus, you must be born again to see the kingdom of God. Now, in the original language, this is an interesting phrase that is given to us. Um, the word born can mean born, as a child is born, 
but it can also mean starting over again. It can also be translated uh, the beginning, uh, at the start, at the top. And when it's combined with the other Greek word for again, that can be translated multiple ways too. And if you have your Bibles with you and multiple translations, you'll see, if you were following along, that some of your translations indeed translated it differently. The two most popular ways to translate this are born again. The second most popular is born from above. Born from that which where all things began. Or, if you get real literal, you must begin again at the beginning. It's a redundancy in this phrase. Now the problem is, is that me, being raised in the church all my life, having been drugged, I mean taken to many revivals, Always heard the preacher through sweat and spit with finger pointing, you must be born again, with that little guttural sigh at the very end. And so for many people, the born again has taken on sort of a negative attitude, a negative perspective. We mean I got to be born again. What's that mean? For many people, being born again means you have to submit to the way we do things. You have to join our crew, our group, and you have to accept our traditions as your traditions, our customs as your customs. If you want to be good Christians, you have to be like me. Well, that may be how some folks have understood it. It may be how some preachers have preached it, but do you really believe that's what Jesus meant? I don't think so either. Jesus was speaking what so many people in our culture want to hear. I, I kind of chuckle and smile uh, how people will post on social media or, or tell me that, you know, this is a new day, I get to start over. And I'm thinking, you're getting ready to be born again. You see, there's so many people in our culture who are desirous of a second chance, a third chance, a fourth chance, a fifth chance. One only needs to go through a divorce to understand the deep human yearning of being able to have another chance, another shot. People who loved someone and their spouse died, and as they grieved for years, they dared to wonder, will they have another chance to fall in love? Will they have another chance to begin again? I remember in our own family, our first child was stillborn. And as we held our child in our arms, so hard to get that child. And the only question that I could even muster up the courage to ask God in the months that followed was, will we get another chance? Will we get to be born again? When Jesus is talking to Nicodemus is here, he's talking about a spiritual birth. He's talking about a spiritual beginning again. And this is, I think, very bluntly what it means. I don't care where you've been. I don't care what you've done. I don't care whose bed you were lying in. I don't care what relationship 
dishonored yourself, your parents, your family, the name of God, you have an opportunity at another shot. You have a chance to be born again. You have a chance for a do-over. You have a chance for a new lease on life. You have an opportunity for God to come into your life and make a difference. You see, and here's where most of us miss it. Because the question we ask when somebody says that to us is, how can I be born again? How can I have this? What do I got to do to have this? And this, my friends, is the gospel message. It is not how we are born again, but from whom we are born again. It's not what I've done. It's what Jesus has done for me. It's not any sense of righteousness, because here's the truth. I don't deserve a second chance. And so the second chance I have gotten isn't because I deserved it. It's simply because God was gracious enough to give it. It's not about me. My salvation is not about me. It's about what Jesus has done for me. And so it was my turn to stand before the judge. And the wonderful thing about those traffic cameras is, is they take pictures really, really, really quick and they measure your speed. And, and so I went up to the judge and I said to the judge, Your Honor, that light turned red before I was ready for it to turn red. <laughs> but I slammed on my brakes. And if you'll look at the citation that you sent me in the mail, Your Honor, you'll see a couple of things. First of all, my brake lights are on in the first two pictures, which shows you that I'm trying to stop. And if you'll look at the first two pictures, you'll notice that on the first picture, I'm doing about 30 miles an hour. And in the second picture, I've slowed down to 15 miles an hour. I'm trying to stop, Your Honor. And if you look at the bottom picture, you'll notice in the bottom picture, my brake lights are no longer on, but my backup lights are on. And so I'm literally trying to back up out of the intersection so that I can wait for the light to turn green again. And there was this pause. And the prosecutor said, Your Honor, may I read from the Maryland Statutes of Vehicular Law? <laughs> the judge says, yes, go ahead. And he says, and this is a paraphrase, if you cross the white line, you have failed to stop properly and are in violation of the vehicular code of which you have been charged. Jesus says in verse 19 of chapter 3, which I think is probably even more important than John 3, 16 and 17. Don't go and tell anybody that. They'll think I'm a horrible person. But this is what he says. 
And this is the judgment. Well, there the preacher goes talking about judgment again. This is the judgment. The word judgment in the original language is the Greek word krisis. K-R-I-S-I-S. We get the word crisis from it. It is the most common uh, uh, translation of that Greek word. And so with that, the Bible translators, being you know, immersed in the Protestant Reformation, saw that word and appropriately translated it judgment, but it could just as easily be translated crisis. And so this is the crisis. Hear it now with that preface. This is the crisis. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light. What's the crisis? Here's the crisis. I know what I've done. I know what I'm capable of. And I have a choice. There's a crisis in my life. I can either scamper to the darkness and pray that no one ever knows, or I can come to the light and be healed. Sometimes scrubbing a wound, remember when your mama used to do that, when you'd fall and get that road rash on your knee and you'd come in and, you know, it's numb for a little bit, but it doesn't last near long enough and your mother takes you into the bathroom and she says, now honey, this is going to hurt. And that was an understatement. And she got that wound clean and then she put that methylate on it. I can tell your age Because we would say, can I have the mercure chrome instead? I'm not going to say this phrase at the second service. And mom said, no, we're giving you the methylate. You see, all of us are looking for goodness. All of us are looking for grace. All of us are looking for security. And the problem is, is, is that there's a group who have wonderful evangelists. And that group is called the world. And the world tells you, you can have all of those things. And the way you'll get these things is by seeking status and power and possessions. And if you can get status and power and possessions, you can do whatever you want. You don't have to worry about morality. You don't have to worry about fairness. You don't have to worry about telling the truth. If you have status, power, and possessions, no one will dare confront you. They may talk about you behind your back. They won't dare confront you. But here's the problem. All of those things demand our allegiance. And once we accept that path, we have accepted the control of those things over our life. And once we have accepted that deity, that God, to be in control over our life, we can't break free. So the judge turned back to me and he said, Mr. Nicholson, do you have anything to say to that? Well, having been in law enforcement prior to going into ministry, I kind of figured that would be the prosecutor's tack on the whole thing. And I knew that there was only one saving grace for me. I had to prove that the state was wrong. 
You know how hard that is. So I went out to the intersection, and I parked my car, and I sat, and I watched that traffic light. And I saw multiple people do the same thing I did, and flashing lights. I'm like, how much money is the county making on this intersection? Well, there's a thing called an amber cycle. Now, this is something that most folks don't know, but it is, in most states, a law that every traffic light has to have a properly functioning amber cycle. And what an amber cycle is, essentially, is, is that the yellow light has to stay yellow for one second to every 10 miles of the speed limit. So if it's a 40-mile zone, the yellow light has to stay lit for four seconds. If it's a 35-mile zone, three and a half seconds. You get the point. And I measured that thing over and over and over again. And it was a 40-mile-an-hour zone, and that light only stayed yellow for about two and a half seconds. So I said, Your Honor, I explained all this to him, and I said that about the light. And the judge sort of looked at me. And the prosecutor started shaking his head. And the judge turned to the prosecutor, and he says, Mr. Prosecutor, do you have the repair logs from that particular light? Oh, thank you, Jesus. <laughs> he didn't have it. And the judge looked at me and he said, Mr. Nicholson, how did you measure that amber cycle? And he had me again. I said, I, I just looked at my watch. He said, you looked at the watch and you think you're good enough to measure the amber cycle down to the second. I guess you'll have to be the judge of that, Your Honor. And there was a long pause. And he said, Mr. Nicholson, I believe you. Not guilty. And finally, the bailiff come over and said, you can go now. <laughs> because the most powerful thing of verse 19 is this. No, verse 18. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe in him is condemned already. You see, it's not that we're condemned because we don't believe in Jesus. You hear that? It's not that we're condemned because we don't believe in Jesus. It's that we're already condemned. And the only way for the eternal judge of the universe to bring his gavel down and say not guilty is because of Jesus. I wonder whatever happened to Nicodemus. This is a work by Michelangelo. It's called Bandini Pieta. It is very similar to the Pieta that's found in the Vatican in Rome where Mary is holding the crucified Lord. But this one is in a museum in Italy and it's the Bandini Pieta because it has an extra person and the guy in the background is Nicodemus. We don't ever hear about Nicodemus anymore until we get to John chapter 19. And in verse 38 of John chapter 19, 
After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. You see, even this Pharisee, concerned about his public image, when he encountered Jesus, he was changed. And it will change you, and it will change me too.